if you're on the bubble in, in terms of trying to decide whether to keep your business alive or not, call your local bankruptcy attorney, understand what your options are a year from now. Then you have the additional data to plan strategically one way or the other. In the absence of that information right now, you're really flying blind. Learn modern marketing that you can use to grow your business in today's competitive landscape. This is Digital Marketing Masters with Matt and Carrie Rouse. Welcome to Digital Marketing Masters. And today we're going to be talking with Mark Whitney from DoorDoor Sales to Suing the Government, one of the top rated political satire podcasts and even running for president of the United States. Mark Whitney has the experience to help your company take your sales to the next level. An amazing story to tell. So grab your popcorn, turn up the volume. Let's have a conversation with Mark Whitney. Mark, how are you? Hey, good. It's great to be here. It's great to be seen. It's nice to uh, have a conversation with somebody while we're all sheltered in place. You know, it keeps us alive and well, right? Our recording software has got like a big screen on it so we can see each other instead of those tiny little Zoom, like everybody's on Zoom, right? Right. But this is an audio only show though, right? It just helps us communicate better. Okay. Nobody can see what we're doing on the video right now. All right. So I don't have to get dressed then. That's good. <laughs> That's right. So anyway, instead of dancing around the question, I wanted to ask you right up front. Why did you run for president? Well, I ran for president to return authority to the highest office in the land, which is the office of citizen. And I ran to get the nomination of the Libertarian Party. And the distinction really was, you know, every here, here's what it comes down to. Every political question in the world is a debate between individual autonomy and institutional authority. How much power should the institution have? How much freedom should the individual have? That's really the debate. And the Libertarian Party kind of is, don't spend a dollar you don't have. Keep your nose out of other people's business. I kind of like that. Works for me. I've been a civil libertarian for a long time, constitutional scholar. I love the Bill of Rights. I love the First Amendment, which I think has created the most amazing sandbox for citizens to jump in and play around and try new things and create things from a blank sheet of paper. That's what I've done all my life. And I love the United States for that reason. Great. And so... Why did you drop out of the? I know you dropped out on the 24th of April, I believe it was, for the Libertarian nomination. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. I'm happy to. Uh, people don't realize it, but there are almost a thousand people, almost a thousand of your fellow citizens running for president this year. There were about five or six hundred Democrats who sought the nomination, about 200, 250 Republicans in my party, about 35 people. And so when I took myself off the road about six weeks ago because of the virus, you know, it was literally my job for several months to go out, hang out at airports, get on airplanes, go to hotels. And this is key. Make sure I shake every hand. <laughs> that was my job. So I figured I was probably radioactive. And, you know, a couple <laughs> weeks before there were quarantines uh, announced, I took myself off the road and I encouraged my fellow candidates to debate online, which is what we did. But it got down to the point where, where I really think, like a lot of other things, there's no, there's been no official announcement. But politics, like a lot of other things, has been suspended. And the, uh, the delegates in my party, like citizens everywhere across the country, are disconnected from politics. That's not what they're thinking about right now. So I sat down uh, about a week ago or so, and I kind of looked at the field. And I figured that if I did everything I could to win, I might come in third or fourth. But there's no way I was going to win. So I just kind of looked at who had the chance of winning. I came down to two people. I endorsed the person 
who I agreed with most out of those two people. And I pulled back to give that person some margin and then encouraged my party to nominate someone as soon as possible so that person can get on with the business of campaigning. So the business of campaigning, kind of like any almost like the speaking business or the trade show business, is a big problem right now, right? Absolutely. Anything that I was talking to you before we went on the air here, it used to be when we thought in terms of creating, you know, we think in terms of the page, the stage, the screen. Now all the world is a screen that presents problems and opportunities, but it does narrow our options tremendously. Can you imagine like, like here's something fundamental that changed. New York City is no longer the greatest city in the world. <laughs> that's, that's kind of a big change. Yeah. I mean, and I think that's going to be true for a long time. I have friends in the real estate business here in uh, San Diego. I have one friend that has a property that she manages in La Jolla, and it's for rent for $18,000 a month. And she's getting all kinds of calls from New York. People are going to know, you know they're going to be locked down. They want to come out and rent this place in San Diego and get out of the city. So many calls are coming from New York here in San Diego. People just are drastically rethinking how they live, you know. I saw a statistic that half of the condo units in New York made in the last five years are still vacant. And that's not going to that that number is going to go up. I mean, that it's a real thing. <laughs> yeah, my party, uh, there are a lot of people in the Libertarian Party who are out there. You know, some of them are out there licking doorknobs to try to prove a point. But, you know, the, I don't think the government wants this anymore than anybody else. The, the, you know, the Republicans and Democrats have things pretty well set up. They pretty well know what the results going to be before elections happen. And this throws a wrinkle into things politically for them because we judge our politicians based on how they respond to things like hurricanes, tornadoes, pandemics, and fires and stuff like that. They don't want this anymore than anybody else does. Yeah. And I mean, it's going to be uh, a big problem, obviously, for a lot of industries. And and kind of one of those things that we talked a little bit about before the show was that like restaurants and, and other kind of retail businesses and stuff weren't really aware that there was a possibility that the governor could say you have to close your business and then you're closed. Like and I don't even know if that's like, do they even have the actual power to do that? I mean, you would probably know more than I would, but. You know, if I was a chief executive, one of our 51 chief executives, a president or a governor, the first thing I would do is be honest with the people. I would say, look, I don't actually have the authority to tell you what to do here. However, I do have access to some pretty good experts here. We definitely have a thing going on. And I think I believe that if we lived in a world that had no borders and no governments and all we had access to is media and science, that a majority of us, just as moral people, would be doing what we're doing now which is, uh, you know, we, we know from science that most of the people who have this virus are asymptomatic. So there's a chance that we can infect somebody who is vulnerable to it. And we definitely need to have this time out to, to understand this situation. And there are more questions than there are answers. Like, we don't know if you get the virus, if you can get it again. We don't know how long it'll take to perfect the vaccine that can be scaled globally to 7 billion people. And, and then there's just practical things like if you're parents to children and, and you know, school age children and you're both working, you know, what happens if your company reopens and the schools don't reopen? My studio where I'm talking from now, the, the studio I have here in my company's headquarters, right across the road from me is a company called Qualcomm. And they make all of our chip. You know, they make barbecue, uh, all salt. Off. So, uh, <laughs> so they, their headquarters over here, they got about. 50,000 people that work over there. 
And one of the things I've been wondering about is how does a company like that reopen if they can't get private insurance to protect themselves from class action suits by employees for failure to provide a safe work environment? I mean, man, there are just some fundamental things here right now. And I, I've seen, you know, cuddle on the Trump administration saying that, you know, they want to pass some laws that make it impossible for employees to sue their employers based on what I just discussed. And that's not good. You know, I read today Trump is wanting to use the Defense Production Act to order meat suppliers to stay open. But, you know, the people that, that prepare our meat, they're working in very close quarters and they are susceptible to getting this virus just like a prisoner is or, or, or anyone who would go to see a Broadway show. So are we going to make a decision that <laughs> it's down to the chicken? You know what I mean? Right. Are we going to? I can't, I can't try to imagine. I was saying to my wife, can you imagine the United States without chicken? Like we would eat all the fish and then the fish would be gone. And it's like it's mind boggling to kind of play this stuff out. You know, and as entrepreneurs, that's exactly what we do. We imagine scenarios and we try to evaluate what's going on, try to find opportunities. And the, the biggest opportunities always happen in the face of adversity and disruption. But this is earth shattering, mind boggling stuff. And in Oregon, where I am right now, they were talking about OSHA. That's the Oregon Health Safety Association, I think it's called. Yeah. Occupational uh, Safety and Health Administration. Yeah. That's actually a federal thing. Oh, it's federal. Yeah. Sorry. I'm originally Canadian, so I don't know all of the. <laughs> that, that's, all, that's all right. But some very funny people come from Canada. That's right. So OSHA, uh, if they regulate what is defined as safety in the workplace, for like, you have to wear and supply N95 masks and maybe it's hand sanitizer, gloves, whatever, right? Foot booties or something. As long as you're supplying those things, I was under this understanding that the employees can't sue you if you're supplying what is required. But of course, so you do one of your businesses, the law net. So I figured you'd probably know more about the law than I would, but I don't know. This is not legal advice for anyone. Just saying, check with your attorney. But if you have an opinion on that. Well, you know, I think the standard for individuals is, let's say you have a 19 or 20 year old kid you really care about. Would you want your kid to work in that environment under those circumstances? That's kind of the standard. I think we're going to see a set of protocols that emerge and those protocols will be adopted. And then we'll find out 15 years down the road that those protocols were wholly inadequate. That's the way these things usually go. And people, workers, you know, on the front line get sacrificed. I mean, right now, right now, right? People are getting up in the morning. They're going to work in grocery stores. And on their way to the grocery store, the news is saying you should only go to the grocery store when you really need groceries. Right. But these people are working in the grocery store every day, not by choice. They're doing it because they have to make a living. They're getting a couple dollars extra per hour is combat pay. But the fact of the matter is there's a subset of those people who are taking their life into their hands every day. They're making a choice between clean oxygen and being able to put food on their own table. You know, I heard Mark Cuban in an interview, YouTube interview with somebody dated April 21st, if someone wants to look it up. Mark Cuban is saying, uh, he says, America 1.0 is over. America 1.0 is over. America 2.0 is going to be universal basic income. And then 10 people are going to have all the money. I say bullshit to that. I think all the billionaires got together and had a conference call and said, we need to advocate universal basic income because if we don't, the government is going to call, claw back all these billions and we're right. just going to be millionaires. Elon Musk planted the idea of universal basic income in the mind of Andrew Yang. 
And Elon Musk has an enormous incentive to make sure the government is providing people with a living so that he doesn't lose his billions. I still say that uh, the United States is the greatest creative incubator of creativity that's ever been invented in the history of humankind. And that, that we need to lean into our creativity. We need to find the opportunities in this adversity. And, you know, my life is one that is defined by finding the opportunities in adversity. So, so on the one hand, I don't want to see people suffer. On the other hand, I am extremely optimistic of how we're going to rethink our society on the other side of this. Because if you think about it, the structure of our society, the societal architecture we have in place, has not really changed since the 50s. What did change was the internet came along and it provided efficient distribution and provided a global platform for anybody to uh, put their ideas out there, their products and services out there. But try to imagine, this is what I've been doing as an entrepreneur right now. I mean, I can't decide what my next move should be, whether I should just sit back and take the next year and do some writing or whether I should do another startup. I figure over the summer, there's going to be some clarity. I'm going to know what to do. But this is something I've been thinking about. Imagine that you just arrived here on Earth and all you had was the Internet and you built out from there in an ever increasing spiral. Well, how would the world be different? You know, when I talk about this company across the road from me, Qualcomm, they have more square footage devoted to parking than they have to people. Most strip plazas have more square footage devoted to parking than they have to retail. The people in my city here who who are professors at UCSD they have to commute an hour each way because they can't afford housing nearby where they work. So how might society change? Because people are having experience with homeschooling. They're having experience with working from home. Companies are going to have data points that say, shit, maybe we don't need to have all this square footage devoted to people coming to work. Maybe we can get more and better employees if they have the option of telecommuting. Maybe we can be quote unquote, hiring people from any country around the world. We don't have to worry about HB1 visas or any of that crap. Maybe we can do more things virtually. Maybe we can create a world where people have more choices in education and in everything. So these are these are all opportunities because we're all having this experience and and I think especially people in the in the upper ten percent of net worth, people who are worth more than a million dollars, these are the people who decide how things are going to be. And I don't think they're going to want their precious little children to be around our kids. I really don't. (laughs) So they're they're going to be leading the way and rethinking how society is. And whatever they decide is what's going to happen. Yeah, there's it's funny because so through the agency here, I mean, and and the podcast, all the other things that we do, I actually get to meet a lot of people who are business owners and stuff who are who are definitely over a million dollars in income. Right. And. I have found that the people who built their own businesses tend to be very down to earth. They're not really that involved in in like trying to change the way that the country functions as much as they are as like taking care of their employees and their families and their customers. And yeah, very down to earth people. Absolutely. That's that's my experience as well. But one thing I actually wanted to talk to you about a little bit that you were just saying earlier I think there is going to be a massive change, especially in what they were predicting was the retail apocalypse, right? Because all the shopping malls shut down because obviously there was too many of those because of the tax breaks that people got to open malls in the 80s and 90s in the first place. You know, like you were talking about parking and all these things. You know, if you have a, especially if you have a 100% remote workforce and you need to have an in-person meeting, 
you no longer have to have an office downtown. Correct. You can just draw some lines between geographically where everybody lives and pick the center point and say, hey, let's all meet here. Or you can meet in somewhere that's easier to get to and less expensive. Yeah, my company's been a virtual organization for 20 years. <laughs> yeah, I mean, ours has for, well, our company's only been around for six years. We've been virtual the whole time, but it's a merger of two previous also virtual companies. And, you know, like you were talking about Qualcomm, we have Qualcomm up the street. I live right kind of in Hillsboro, so I'm like between all the Intel campuses, right? Yeah, I know Hillsboro. Yeah, Intel, right? Yeah, I mean, most of those companies. I mean, I was a, I was a contractor at Intel several times, but, you know, the last time was about 2010, and I was still working remotely. You know, like I was already remote. Yeah, my wife's girlfriend, uh, uh, my, uh, my son's girlfriend works there. They live up in uh, Hillsboro, and she works at Intel. Nice. So do you think that retail and kind of office space are kind of on the outs now? Or do you think it's just going to shift to maybe some of that's going to change more to more affordable housing kind of thing? Or, you know, as they convert office and retail space into housing? Or do you think it's just going to sit vacant for a while? I don't know. Like, I've been trying to imagine a world where maybe we have I drew a thing up the other day in Photoshop where I had four circles, right? Four circles of equal size. And then a circle in the middle, a fifth smaller circle that kind of overlaid a little bit the four circles. And I was imagining that in each circle, 100,000 people would live there. And, and that would be a community that had all the essential things that, that you need all the time. And then, and then this fifth circle would have things like a surgical center for when you need surgery, the things that, the things that everybody needs sometimes. I think that it's impossible to imagine anybody right now thinking that, uh, anything that we think of as retail being the way to go, <laughs> you know, even even a little kiosk in a mall that sells ice cream cones or sunglasses. That's not something that is imaginable right now. And it has nothing to do with government or anything else It has to do with people's perceptions. I think that consumers perceptions are going to change. And I think for a long time, people are going to be afraid to get on an airplane. They're going to be afraid to go to a Broadway show. They're going to order online whenever they can. They're going to show up in person only when absolutely necessary. And I'm, I'm thinking like 75% of the people are going to behave that yeah, way. So probably. I think there are going to be tremendous behavior changes where people are trying to, I mean, you think about it, 20 years after 9-11, we're still taking our shoes off to the airport like a bunch of idiots. So I think, I think people are going to, you know, with the encouragement of the media, keeping them in histrionics, they're going to want to pandemic-proof their lives, and that is going to be the market that entrepreneurs are are attempting to do business in, and that is how we need to be thinking, I think, right now. I think a lot of the retail stores, like traditional retail stores that you see now, are going to be replaced more by, like, demonstrative-type stores, right, where you go in and you can... They have one of something, so you can fart around with it and see what it's like, but they don't sell it there. You just order it online. And they take your temperature before you go in and make sure you don't have a fever and, and strap you up with a mask and everything else. It's going to be awful. You know what? <laughs> and I think the temperature thing is going to be automated, right? I think that technology is going to come out very quickly. Yeah, feed through your uh, Apple Watch or something. Yeah, well, you know, you'll you'll come in and it'll it'll have some kind of infrared scanner and the AI program can tell what a, what a face looks like. And, you know, it's going to scan you and see if you have a fever. And if it does, it's going to alert the employee, right? You know, I'm glad I'm an introvert. That's all I can tell you, you know. That's right. I, uh, I, I don't mind talking to a group of 5,000 people. I don't mind being up on stage alone doing that. But, 
But I'm perfectly fine in my little studio creating my little things. And most people are not like that. Most people are extroverts. I think it's it's hard for folks right now. Yeah, it is. I mean, there's a lot of people. I was just talking to some people um, in the Hillsborough Chamber of Commerce Ambassador Group had a meeting today and I was talking to them. And, you know, some of the people, they're just they just look defeated, you know, because they they haven't been able to go out and hang out with people and stuff yes. like they usually do. Yeah. But even if their business is still going fine, I mean, they still look sad. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, exactly. And it's tough for some people. But I mean, there's stuff you could do to kind of keep business alive in your communities, you know, especially small business. If you want a restaurant or a business to be there after this, you better be ordering stuff from them. Yeah, absolutely. If you can, if you can get curbside pickup or delivery, right? A lot of retail has curbside pickup. I got a bunch of homeschooling stuff for my kids from the toy store that's down on Main Street here. Fantastic. They had it all ready. They put it in a bin outside. You know, you just call them as you drive up. They drop it out the door, close the door. You go pick it up. Off you go. You know, and and you also can purchase services you don't really need. Like the other day, I had a couple of guys hand wash and wax my car because the guys at car wa- good car washes are dying. And my car wasn't dirty. <laughs> you know, I just right. they they just sitting there not doing anything and they need the money. So I was like, okay, fine. Here, wash my car and you give them a twenty five dollar tip. And yeah, and if your business is still doing well. I mean, use those other small businesses like your vendors that you count on. Yeah, absolutely. Even if it's stock up on stuff now that you need later, you know, whatever. It's just something to keep them alive. Yeah, keep the cash flow going. That's right. And the cash flow is what's going to save those businesses. I think the flip side of that is there is also a benefit to being realistic about whether your business is salvageable. And the sooner the sooner you can get to a point where you decide it's not salvageable, sometimes that's the best thing because... A bankruptcy really needs should be planned ahead by more than a year for you to land soft. And so many people will go out and borrow more money and they'll put up the rest of the equity in their house and they'll do everything they can to try to keep the business alive and put themselves in a worse position than they than they would have. So just as someone who's been through every possible nightmare that an entrepreneur would experience, if you're on the bubble in, in terms of trying to decide whether to keep your business alive or not, Call your local bankruptcy attorney, understand what your options are a year from now. Then you have the additional data to plan strategically one way or the other. In the absence of that information right now, you're really flying blind. And and I'm speaking now to the 80% of people that are just, you know, mom and pop small businesses. Make sure you understand the bankruptcy law, what the problems and the opportunities are. Sometimes you let your business go, but you can save your house. And you can end up landing a lot softer and have some assets that you wouldn't have otherwise had if you show up on the the door of your bankruptcy lawyer on the eve of bankruptcy, which is the worst place to be. And then it costs you way more money to get it done. (laughs) It costs more money and you come out more broke. Bankruptcy doesn't mean that you don't have property and you don't have money. That's not what it means. You know, if you transfer assets more than a year before your bankruptcy, nobody can get at those assets, you know. But if they're transferred less than a year, then those assets are up for grabs. So there are things like that that people like Donald Trump have used these bankruptcy laws to his advantage and people laugh at it, but he's done it four times and he's used those laws very well. And that's what rich people do. And when I when I went through a bankruptcy in my 20s, I was that guy who showed up on the eve of bankruptcy and tried to work out a chapter 11, but it didn't happen. And you know, I ended up losing everything. We were selling furniture off the front yard to survive for a while when I was 28 years old. And that's not where you want to be. No, that's some really good advice. And and also, if your business is going to survive, 
but you're just having like, you just have cash flow problems right now and you maybe you're waiting on a PPP loan or something like that, right? Or or the SBA disaster loan program or something, but you need cash for yourself to live on. I know that mortgage rates, I heard somebody did a deal on a mortgage at 2.75% on one of the people I know locally. Like if your mortgage was 4% before, right? You use some of that equity in your house, get a 2.75%, lower your payment, get some cash to last you through to get your business going again. There's all kinds of stuff like that you can do. That's right. Look for grant programs. Absolutely. Local Chamber of Commerce is a good place. Check with the city, check with your county, check with your state, all of those places. The feds get all the publicity, but there's a lot of stuff going on at the state and county and local levels. And you're absolutely right. So let me get back to it. I was going to ask you, because I know you have an extensive background in sales and I did a little research before I had you on the show and I wanted to see, I saw this, this fantastic story that you had told someone about your kind of tagline when you started running for president was called keep banging it. Right. Right. You want to tell the story behind keep banging it? The, The hashtag is keep banging. And so when I first got out of high school in a little town in Vermont, my first job out of high school was selling vacuum cleaners door to door. And I turned out to be pretty good at it. I made almost 50,000 bucks my first year out of high school in 1977. But, and I was blessed to have this, uh, back in those days, there were 12,000 representatives for Electrolux Corporation knocking on doors in Canada and the United States. Can you imagine? Mostly men knocking on the doors of houses occupied by mostly women offering to show them a vacuum cleaner while the husbands at work. It's crazy. Uh, you get arrested now for doing that. Uh, some of us should have been arrested back then. But I was blessed to have this manager who was one of the top salesmen, one of the top managers in the company. You got to have all kinds of awards. You know, I'd knock on three or four doors and not have any luck. And I'd look at him furtively and he would just say, keep banging, keep banging. And we always say, let's go bang on some doors. Keep banging, keep banging. So what it, what it came down to was understanding your numbers. And I've been a, a direct marketing guy ever since. I don't like passive marketing models. I don't have hardly any presence on social media for business purposes. I don't like waiting for people to call me. So ever since then, whenever I throw myself into something, the decision tree is I need to have a group of professionals who are easy to find. So in my career, that has been corporate recruiters. That was a seminar company that I co-founded with a guy in 1996 called Ayers that was later acquired by uh, ADP. And then with my current company, TheLaw.net, the group of professionals that is easy to find and wants to be found as attorneys. So whenever I'm starting something new and I'm thinking about direct marketing, if you're you're thinking about direct marketing, then the first thing you do is identify a group of people that are easy to be found. And then you figure out what do they need? What can I develop or create to sell them? So you're kind of reverse engineering your passion into the group of people that you're able to find. In the case of lawyers, what I did was I created a a software that allowed them to have access to a vast amount of legal data that they couldn't otherwise afford from my two big competitors, which really function as a duopoly. So from knocking on doors in 1977 to sending out email to recruiters and attorneys. So for the last you know, 20 years, the LawNet sends out a couple of million emails a week to the nation's lawyers. We don't wait for them to opt in. Every now and then one of them calls and says, I never asked to be on this list. And we say, well, with the LawNet, you don't have to. <laughs> and I just, I never got excited about this whole idea of opt-in list. I felt it was unnecessary. I'm like, how can you grow a business with uh, opt-in list where you're waiting for other people to opt in? 
If I have 500,000 profiles in my database and I send out 500,000 emails targeting, you know, these, this, is not, this is not spam. Uh, these are emails going to lawyers or people within the sphere of influence of lawyers. And I'm showing them that I have software that's really going to make their lives better, make them the best lawyer in the courtroom. So I know if I make 500,000 contacts, I can predict almost to the penny the amount of money that's going to come in. And I can grow a great sustainable business using that model. So I don't, I've never bought into this idea that you should wait for permission to contact people. In fact, the federal government, the Can Spam Act, says that as long as you remove the, the person within 30 days of being requested, that it's, it doesn't meet the federal definition of spam. So I'm not an advocate of just sending random emails out to random people because that's not a business. But what happens is through doing this at first, there's a few people who are upset. But as time goes on and they realize that you're a legitimate company, you're not spoofing your headers, you're like really there with real phone numbers and real people, then people go, oh, this is how this person does business. And so the messaging is very creative, very compelling. And I'm, sh- I'm actually providing a benefit in the messages in teaching people how to be better legal researchers, regardless of what software they're using. So this has worked really well for us. It worked well in the recruiting industry, which we've revolutionized. It's worked well in the legal research industry, which my company has revolutionized. We only have, you know, four or five percent of the market. But the way people think about legal research, my company has changed that completely. It's nice to have the kind of business target before you're trying to, you know, to squeeze people into the box. I know a lot of people are like, well, we're going to build this software and then we're going to figure out who to sell it to. Yeah, that's a, that's ass backwards. If you want to have a direct marketing business, a true direct marketing business that's measurable and sustainable, if you have that, then you can bootstrap your company with cash flow. You don't have to go to the banks. You don't have to get money from investors. You can retain all the equity and you have a nice sustainable business. If you're creating something and then you're going to go find people to buy it, your chances of failure are, are tremendously high. But if you can identify an industry code of people who I call public people, who are like, it would be very hard for me to create something for the programmers behind the wall at Qualcomm across the street because they, I can't find them. But I can find the executives, right? So I could identify a group of corporate executives and say, how can I make their life better? What kind of product or service do they need? And then I create that. And I have found that your passion for what product or service that you're creating is directly related to your ability to make money with it, not the other way around. (laughs) So like talking about it's difficult to find maybe the programmers who work at Qualcomm with some of the modern kind of marketing tech software, you could find them, right? The ability is there now. I mean, there's software now that can look at who a visitor to your website was and it'll give you their email. They even tell you what their home address is. Yes. The condition precedent to that, though, is somebody has to come to your website. So I w- I'm the guy who's not willing to sit around and wait for people to find my website. I go find them, grab them by the throat, shake them until they either say yes or no. Yeah. And there's even software to do that, too. So you can look up people by industry or by company and it'll just return. Here's all their email addresses and their contacts. And I mean, it's not expensive considering, I mean, when you guys built your list, Yeah, I mean, it must cost a fortune to get all of that data. Well, that's actually a funny story. (laughs) One of our competitors, uh, LexisNexis, they owned a a legal publication called Martindale Hubble. It's a legendary directory of lawyers, uh, attorneys throughout the country, and they publish all the contact information in there. 
So before the internet, I was in hard copy and every lawyer had those gold-plated volumes on their shelf. Well, after it went electronic back in 1999, when I started my company, they had a DVD set with this information on it that you could subscribe to for $1,200 a year. So I bought that <laughs> DVD and I had a handy booklet that told you how to strip the information off. Nice. So when I, when I opened the door to my company, I had almost 300,000 contacts wow. of attorneys that I got for $1,200. And then they sued me because <laughs> they accused me of stealing that information off their website. And uh, we let them litigate us litigate with us for three years in federal court and spend a million dollars in legal fees before we told them I was a customer. <laughs> well, that didn't end so well for them. So I wanted to ask you one more thing, and it's kind of a little bit aside, but I wanted to ask you about, and people at home can't see it or who's listening can't see your hat that says Late Night Last Week. Why don't you tell me about Late Night Last Week, the show, and maybe a little bit of time about time you spent with the San Diego Comedy Co-op. Sure. Uh, the San Diego Comedy Club was a comedy club I started in 2005 uh, when I moved out to San Diego in 2000. One of the reasons we moved out here was because I wanted to be a stand-up comedian, which is what I've always wanted to be. And uh, the, La Jolla, the La Jolla Comedy Store, you could get three minutes on an open mic on Sunday night and do three minutes for other comedians and their drunk friends. And that didn't work for me. So I rented a warehouse that was filled with old dental equipment for 1500 bucks a month. And I actually moved my software company's headquarters there, so it would be it would be cash neutral. But we threw out the dental equipment, we painted the place black, put in 100 chairs, a stage, and some sound equipment. And the San Diego Comedy Co-op was born, and we produced hundreds of free shows for the community. And I was on stage every night, so I got very good at stand-up and storytelling in a very short amount of time. And then uh, started telling my stories in theaters around the country, and ended up on the cover of Story Magazine with Drew Carey and Russell Brand. Nice. So Late Night Last Week is a podcast I started shortly after Donald Trump announced for president. He was in his first debate, and Megyn Kelly was at center stage, and Megyn Kelly asked him, she goes, now you call women pigs and sluts and whores and every other name in the book. How do you expect? And then he took a beat, he raised a microphone, and he went, only Rosie O'Donnell. And I said, okay, that's your next president right there. And I, I, I'm not, I, this, I don't say this with approval. But I recognized right away that he was going to be the next president. And Late Night was blowing up with this stuff. We went from having one show with Johnny Carson to having 10 Late Night shows. So Late Night last week synthesized the previous week's Late Night monologues, and I created stories around it. And it was really an opportunity to do political satire and social commentary. And the thing blew up. You know, I had tens of millions of listens. And I did it for almost four years, and I would spend 50 or 60 hours creating a 75-minute episode. It's very highly produced. People really liked it, made some money with it. But then uh, uh, the, the conflict kind of went away when it became apparent that the Democrats were not really going to compete with Trump on the merits. They were going to just use process to kill him. And I knew that wasn't going to work. Again, I'm, it's not a comment on, on Donald Trump or the Democrats or any preference there because I pretty much don't like any politicians. But, uh, but I, just, I just felt that the Democrats didn't have any answers at all to this guy. I expect him to win in a landslide without any trouble. So when the, when the conflict and the tension kind of went away and just kind of got repetitive on late night, that's when I went, okay, well, this was, this was a good experience. That was nice. I'm glad I did it. Time to move on and do something else. And that's why I decided I was going to run for president myself. <laughs> 
Yeah, it seems like the uh, the the late night writing squad is take whatever Trump said on Twitter in the last two days and turn it into a joke, which I mean, isn't a stretch. Pretty much anybody could do that at this point. Yeah, no, it's not. Uh, but it's also very predictable. And I think just reflexively disagreeing with everything the president does. I think that you can dig deeper and do better than that because there are multiple truths in all things. But at the same time, these people have to crank out a show every day. And that is True. that is I mean, really hard. It's a good to way do. to get a lot of content you yeah. know, production. Yeah, absolutely. Going back to kind of the business end of things, if you had one thing that you think would be a good piece of advice for business owners right now, what do you think that would be? Bootstrap. If you're thinking of starting it, so there are going to be a lot of people in this period of time that we're living in who I believe are going to discover their inner entrepreneur. They're going to discover. I don't know what they're going to do. They're going to start knocking on their neighbor's doors. They're going to come up with services that need to be provided that aren't being provided. And they're going to start doing that. But I'm a big fan of bootstrapping. Both of my sons became self-made millionaires before they were 35. They on their own, no family money, no debt. I have an autistic son who's 32 who has a $15 million Amazon store that he grew from cash flow. And he started selling stuff on eBay when he was, you know, 15 years old. He's going to yard sales and so my advice is to, if you're thinking of starting something for the first time, just take the first step, knock on a few doors, you know, even if it's just mowing lawns for somebody, it doesn't matter. You'll start to feel what it's like to be a rainmaker. And if your confidence increases, you'll start to do more and better things. But here's where a lot of people go wrong. They get a good idea and they go on a shark tank and they sell their equity to these people because they think they need partners. There's an enormous lifestyle value in maintaining 100% equity and being content to have a company that does a million or $2 million a year instead of a company that does $25 million a year is laden with debt. You got 100 employees and your life sucks. I'm a big fan of, of bootstrapping, not having any debt, bootstrapping from cash flow, direct marketing models, and just having a nice little family business that's sustainable. I think if you're somebody that likes vacations, well, you're not going to be able to take them anymore. So you may as well put your... They don't put your efforts into building a business. You know, I'm not someone that takes vacations. So one of the reasons I moved to San Diego, I'm available for everything all the time, seven days a week. If I wanted to go to the beach on Wednesday morning at 10 o'clock when nobody's there, I can do that. But I'm going to have to make up for it at 10 o'clock at night. That is the lifestyle that I've chosen. So I feel like it's a vacation lifestyle where I live, but I'm on the dime for my business every day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. The alternative to that for me would be managing a lot of people and things like that. And I, I want to keep the number of people I manage down. I want to keep my expenses predictable. I'm not interested in you if you make a million dollars a year. I want to know how much you keep. How much do you keep? Are you living beneath your means? Because if you want to be a successful entrepreneur and have a sustainable business over many, many years, you need to be living beneath your means so that you are pandemic proof, to use the most extreme example. Nobody in my family, myself, my wife, my kids, none of us are sweating this pandemic from a financial standpoint. It's just not an issue for us. We're good. And the reason we're good is because, uh, you know, I just bought a new car for me, right? It's a 2017 VW Beetle. It's a really nice one. It's a special edition. I got it for $20,000. I can easily afford a Bentley, but there is no way in hell I'm going to ever buy a Bentley because I'm secure in who I am. I don't need a Bentley. <laughs> so people can go, wow, look at the Bentley. So, you know, if you have that combination, 
if you have this philosophy, when you create a business that you own and you own it 100% and you know this is what you want to do, when the venture capitalists come along, you say no. When the lobbying firms come in from Washington, D.C., as they've done with my company, the Law.net, they bring me down to the Bay here in San Diego. They look at the yachts and they say, wouldn't you like to have one of those? We can get a law passed that requires government agencies to buy your software. I say no, because I have exactly the lifestyle and exactly the business I want. You start your own business. Well, you're not really designing a business. You're designing a lifestyle. That's what you're designing. And that is what you need to keep in mind. You know, and if you can keep your lifestyle reasonable, I respect you more as an entrepreneur because that tells me that, that you really get it, that you understand that as good as things are today, the world can change very quickly. We're seeing that right now. This is a very extreme example. But before this, markets change very quickly. So that's my advice is bootstrap direct marketing, direct marketing where you can go out and affirmatively contact people electronically. And you bootstrap them from cash flow and you just get started and the market will pay you to learn. The market will teach you what you need to know to be successful. You just need to listen. Absolutely. That's great advice. I know like entrepreneur that owns Sumo Me, which is web marketing software, Noah Kagan. He's actually famous because he's got a book out that he was the 30th, I think, employee at Facebook and he quit. Yeah, he quit. He lost $185 million in stock options. But anyway, he's a millionaire again now. And because he's an entrepreneur and one of his best speeches that I ever saw was learn how to sell in your own backyard first. Yes, absolutely. And that was sell to people, you know, in your neighborhood, in your area, then people you don't know, and then kind of scale out from there, kind of bigger circles of influence the, the, the farther you go. Absolutely, because the world, it doesn't matter what you try to do. The world says no. The world says no. The world doesn't say yes. So you need to become an expert at, at just letting that, just, just brushing that off. You brush off the negativity of that, but you use the positive part of no. And you listen, okay, why are they saying no? What is it I need to change here, right? And, and one of the things you see on Shark Tank all the time, you see people come out and they're married to this idea, right? They've got this cookie. That's going to change the world as we know it. And they've borrowed from their parents. They've borrowed from their friends. They've given away stock. And Shark Tank is their last stop. Well, the cookie idea sucked. It was a bad idea. And most ideas, you know, if you come up with 20 ideas and one of them is good, that's about right. So, you know, if you're just an individual out there testing different services, you know, if you start knocking on doors because you want to mow lawns, people are, there's going to be a, a subset of people say no to that. But I need the deck painted. I need this done. I need that done. And that's what I mean when I say the market will teach you. And then then once you find that intersection, what the market is teaching you and something that you can become very good at, then there's a potential to take that national or international and then to do it in an efficient way through these uh, amazing platforms we have. And ultimately, you know, it's for people to decide. I mean, there are many people who would disagree with me and would, and would like the idea of having 25 or 50 employees. And that's fine, you know, as long as you've got predictable cash flow and you're not getting in deep with banks and putting your house at risk and things like that. You know, there are people who say, well, if you're not willing to mortgage your house, then you're not serious. And I say, no, you know, your house is important. And you ought to go out and find something where you don't have to mortgage your house so you can take care of your family and you can go out there and fail over and over. I always talk about, you know, failing better tomorrow. Tomorrow you can fail better tomorrow. 
and just keep failing better and failing better. And eventually you can, you can find a path. You know, I've had this, I can't, I cannot believe the law.net. I often joke that it doesn't matter what I do. I cannot kill this business. <laughs> um, <laughs> the, the idea is so much better than I ever imagined. Google Scholar came along in 2008 and you can get for free on Google Scholar what my company sells. But I got, I was so early. I was 10 years ahead of everybody else in terms of what I saw that, you know, we could stop marketing new sales tomorrow and just live off the renewal subscriptions for the next 10 years if we want to. You know, I'm 60. Well, and I mean, there's there's definitely just because you could go find information for free doesn't mean that aggregating it doesn't have a value, right? That is correct. And curating that kind of information, too. And you know what? And it doesn't just what you're saying doesn't just go for starting a new business. It also if you need to pivot your business you know, you everybody has information and assets and things like that, that can be used for something else than what you're doing with them right now. Yes, that's right. So if your business is in trouble, it's time to start writing all that stuff down or whiteboarding or sketching or whatever it is and say, what are people need now? What are they going to need when this is over? How can the assets that I have help point towards that and see if you can come up with something, you know, because that pivot might be something that can really change your business forever. Yeah. And I'm a big fan of businesses where the where the average sale is a thousand dollars or less, because that means you're going to have thousands of relationships that make your company work. And, you know, if you lose a, if you lose a relationship, who cares? Whereas, you know, if you are an employee over at Qualcomm, you work at Qualcomm and you make 200,000 years of programming, your wife works at Illumina or Intel and she makes $200,000 a year. And now you get a mortgage on a $1.5 million house and one of you loses your job. That's 50% that is, is gone, right? 50%. You know, if I lose a subscriber to the LawNet today, do I care? No, I got plenty of other subscribers to keep me going. So I like micro sales. I like business to business, direct marketing, micro sales, thousand dollars or less. That's what I like. You know, just like you were saying, if you can bootstrap and live beneath your means, make sure your cash flow positive. And I mean, you can grow your business forever if you're cash flow positive. Yeah. You know what? Here's an example. This is a good example. And I don't I don't mean to kind of take over the last word on it here, but Starbucks is a perfect example of that now. And nobody knows it because the fact is that everybody is putting their money on their Starbucks card and not spending it all right away. Right. And Starbucks is opening all their restaurants for free on everybody else's dime. So they're cash flow positive, 100 percent cash flow positive business. Absolutely. And that's unheard of for a corporation that size. Right. Yeah. And that cup of coffee costs them, what, five or 10 cents. And they're selling it for three, four dollars. Yeah. Two, three bucks or whatever for a drip coffee. Right. And I don't know about where you are, but in our area, they're giving all the first responders free coffee right now, which is kind of cool. Yeah. And also there's there's a startup coffee shop here. I think they have four coffee shops and they had one with a drive through. But now they just opened the other three again for takeout a couple days ago. And they're starting to pick up business again, too. And if they could get that model like Starbucks has, where people load the money on the cards ahead of time, they can be open in source for free, right? Absolutely. You can totally do that. You know, you can always be thinking about growing, but it's also okay to not think about growing. It's okay to say, I got my million dollar company. I'm taking 250 grand a year out of it. I'm happy. I want to go to the beach. I want to surf. I want to do other things. And, and what this business did is it purchased that lifestyle. And that's kind of where I've been at with, with my company. You know, that's why I moved to San Diego. I just want to have a great lifestyle. And the law that allows me to have that. And in your spare time, you get to run for president. <laughs> I tell the story in my 20s, I violated the first rule of holes, which is when you're in a hole, stop digging. 
And in my 30s, I dug out. My 40s, I rebuilt. My 50s, I killed it. And I'm just kind of available to be of service now. And and I want to be of service. I want to be helpful. I like doing shows like this where I can share what I've learned with people and people can take that for what it's worth. Hopefully it helps some folks. And I think that's a that's a good way to spend my 60s. Mark, I appreciate your time and being on the show today. MarkWhitney.com and TheLaw.net. This has been Digital Marketing Masters with Matt and Carrie Rouse. For notes and a transcript of this episode, go to hookseo.com forward slash podcast. Now stay tuned for a preview of our next episode of Digital Marketing Masters. Join us next time as we chat with virtual event strategist Liam Austin. Digital Marketing Masters is brought to you by Hook SEO Digital Marketing. Our show is produced by Matthew Rouse and Scott Burson. Mixed and edited by Silent Outburst Productions. I'm your announcer, Daniel D. Craig. We would love to hear your thoughts. Please leave us an honest review with your podcast provider. Your reviews help us help more business leaders just like you.